Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I interviewed Professor Dana Fisher, Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Programme for Society and the Environment at the University of Maryland. Her research focuses on understanding the relationship between environmentalism and democracy, and most recently, studying activism and American climate politics. She is the author of National Governance and the Global Climate Change Regime, Activism Inc., and her most recent book is American Resistance from the Women's March to the Blue Wave. On the 6th of October 2020, I spoke with Professor Fisher about American resistance, the rise of distributed organizing in the United States, and the impact that Black Lives Matter and climate protests may have on the November 2020 presidential election. Hello, Professor Fisher. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. So your book is called um, American Resistance. How do you define the resistance? And what period of time and elections does that cover in your book? So I define the American resistance very specifically in the book. I define it as the people working individually and through organizations to challenge the Trump administration and its policies. So the resistance includes people working as individual citizens or non-citizens through their professions as lawyers, scientists, artists, or professional athletes. But it also includes organizations that run the gamut in terms of their levels of professionalization. The violent fringe that stirred in response to white supremacist activities around the United States, which we call the Antifa, uh, is also part of the resistance to the degree that it's focused specifically on targeting the Trump agenda. But in contrast to other claims, anonymous people working within the Trump administration who have challenged President Trump as a person but support his broader political agenda are not part of the resistance. And I think that's a really important point to highlight because there are lots of people who are coming forward now saying that they're resisting specific components of the ways that President Trump is behaving but are actually supportive of the policy. So again, the resistance is specifically about people who are working together or individually to challenge the Trump administration and its policies. And um, as you asked before, with regard to the timeline, the book actually focuses on data that were collected starting the day after the inauguration, which was uh, the day of the first Women's March, which is still considered to be the largest day of protest in America's history. And it goes all the way through the blue wave that happened during the midterm elections in November 2018. And I should just say that actually the last chapter talks about the Women's March after the blue wave. So continues through January of 2019. And I've continued to collect data. In fact, I'm in the middle of a follow-up project, which specifically is looking at how racial justice and issues related to systemic racism have joined within this notion of resistance and the notion of the American resistance and how they're all working together around the 2020 election, which as you know, is taking place in less than a month now. Actually, I guess four weeks from today. Thank you. So your book talks about the rise of distributed organizing. So what do you mean by distributed organizing and how is it different from more traditional forms of organizing that people might be familiar with? So distributed organizing is this new style of organizing that focuses specifically not on geographic location or pre-existing social ties, but on digital connections. And I think it's really important to think through, if we think back to the, the, uh, the days of the civil rights movement in the United States, which is kind of what we compare all movements to in the United States. During the civil rights movement, so much of organizing was focused around face-to-face contact. And that continued through recently. And so at this point, 
this distributed organizing is a shift to taking advantage of digital ties that are now connecting people to both organizations and to one another in really innovative ways. And what I talk about in the book is the ways that distributed organizing has really changed much of the practice of membership in organizations. So that if we even ask people in the streets, if they are members of organizations that are coordinating protests, and it used to be during the 60s that people would know because they would have come on buses with their organization to participate in an event. Nowadays, people being a member of an organization, the, the organizations usually define membership as being on their email list, not paying dues, not participating in meetings. So it's very, very different. And as a result, many of the people who are perceived of as members by the organizations don't even have that kind of brand affiliation that you would have seen before. In addition to the change in the practice of membership, which was begun well before now, but has become much more diffuse of a practice these days. But in addition to that, there is this facilitation of a move away from the federated structure of Civic America, which many people have spoken about. What I mean by the federated structure of Civic America is that in the United States, we have a federated structure of governance where we have the federal government, but then states have a lot of rights you know, in and of themselves, and that goes down to the local level. And Civic America has been noted to very much follow the same type of a format. What we see with these civic groups that have become really engaged around the resistance, or what I call resistance groups in the book, is that many organizations are more seen as networks and no longer as federated structures. So they no longer have any hierarchies to them. They may have large national nodes that coordinate or distribute resources, but they're very, very non-geographically bounded, and they also happen to be um, not very hierarchical. And finally, there's something very important about the lack of geographic grounding to distributed organizing. You know, many of the organizers whom I spoke to when I was trying to figure out what distributed organizing was for the book talked to me about how many of the activists who are working within their networks may live in a very blue area or very, an area that's very, you know, democratically supportive like say California or where I live here in, in Maryland, right outside of Washington, DC. And they may want to be working in areas where there are much more contested elections taking place. So they talk about people who are sitting in California and want to do all of their phone banking and do work with Kentucky, where there is much more, you know, entrenchment of Republican, you know, ideals and Republican candidates. So it gives people the capacity to do that. And they say that distributed organizing enables you to do this kind of outreach sitting on your couch with a glass of Chardonnay after the kids go to bed in your pajamas. And that's one of the beautiful things about distributed organizing is it takes advantage of the digital connections and these digital tools. And there are amazing toolboxes of techniques that can be used nowadays. In fact, they're using them right now around the 2020 election. Many groups are enabling people to do phone banking and text banking from their homes using digital tools to get access to the voter file even so they can identify likely supporters of candidates who live in their communities or who may even be in their social networks, but they didn't know they were unlikely voters to help motivate them to participate. One of the challenges, though, with distributed organizing is that much research, much of my research in the past 20 years, as well as many other people, have noted how when you only do work digitally and don't actually do this kind of work face-to-face, -face, it doesn't have the same kind of lasting embeddedness and community that is so important for civic engagement, you know, everywhere, but in America is where a lot of the research is, you know, is focused. And we've talked about that a lot right now because 
if you look at the ways that different campaigns are being run at the national level, the Trump campaign has been working very hard to do this kind of face-to-face -face organizing, even though we're in a pandemic. So we see people who are going and even going door to door doing what we call canvassing, whereas the Biden campaign has decided not to do any of that kind of face-to-face -face work because of the dangers of the pandemic. And instead they're relying exclusively on these digital tools, which are facilitated and made possible by distributed organizing. But there's a question of what might be lost there. Now I should say that an update is that, you know, before this, you know, we're, we're in this very interesting time right now where the president tested positive for COVID and just got out of the hospital. But before all of that, the Biden campaign said that they were gonna start doing more face-to-face -face canvassing leading up to the election. Now it's unclear if that's going to continue because many people are very afraid and COVID rates in the United States are rising. Uh, that's partially been exacerbated by the fact that the president has been holding events where people are going into large groups massless and we're seeing a lot of vectors of the disease. So it's unclear how that will all play out. But right now there certainly is a clear distinction between the way the left has been doing a lot of its ground game is what we call it in terms of how they're doing outreach to potential voters or likely voters versus the way the right is. Thanks. So, so I wanted to ask you, how has distributed organizing been used by those in movements like Black Lives Matter and the climate protest movement, which I know you've done a lot of work on throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and also before? Well, it's an interesting contrast to look at the youth climate movement versus Black Lives Matter, because the youth climate movement, actually, let me say first, both of these movements tend to involve uh, very dense networks of organizations and individuals who are affiliated with multiple organizations simultaneously. And again, I would say that the affiliation is defined as a digital tie rather than a face-to-face -face tie in most cases. But what's really interesting is we see much more intentional engagement at the local level from Black Lives Matter, at least historically. And even with the protests that we've seen through this summer, for Black Lives Matter, there has been much less connection with professional organizations. And in fact, some of the leaders of the, the movement have specifically said that they want people to be very much in these diffuse networks of individuals and you know, even affinity groups working in the local level rather than there being centralized nodes of organizations that are trying to coordinate people. They do that very much through social media. And particularly since uh, this summer, since George Floyd was murdered in May, what we've seen is that people have come out in sustained engagement and protest and resistance against issues related to Black Lives Matter, um, or around issues related to Black Lives Matter, I should say. And in those cases, the people are not particularly connected to organizations. Whereas when we compare that to what we see with the protests that have been around the climate strikes, which have died down because the organizers for the climate strikes decided not to participate in in-person protests since COVID broke out. Um, and there is some talk that that may change, but at this point we have not seen large scale climate strikes in the United States since March. Um, there was supposed to be a very big one in April and that got moved online exclusively. So when we think about those as distributed organizing, when I think about distributed organizing, I think very much about, you know, uh, networks of organizations working together. And we see much less of that around Black Lives Matter, which is not to say that there aren't people who are organized and connected through it, but just that there isn't this dense overlapping organizational affiliations and infrastructure there, um, which is one thing that is possible with, with distributed organizing. 
What is really interesting, and I have started this recent project looking at the protests against systemic racism in our country. And one of the things that's really interesting that I know from surveying the crowds at these Black Lives Matter related protests is that we've seen a lot of white allies coming out and joining in the, in the, the confrontation um, and in the protests. And as you may know from American resistance, one of the challenges I found through the 2018 election is that the resistance was predominantly made up of highly educated middle-aged white women. We did not see a, a diversity of races or a diversity of backgrounds in terms of people with le less educational backgrounds participating in protests. With the youth climate movement, we saw more diversity, but still it was predominantly white and predominantly highly educated. What's really interesting is that we've really seen people of color go out in the streets since George Floyd was murdered around these issues having to do with police brutality, Black Lives Matter, racial justice, and white allies have joined them. So a lot of the resistance groups that I studied through the 2018 election that were focused specifically on progressive issues and the blue wave have now redirected a lot of their efforts to bringing their members, which is this dense and uh, distributed network of people from across the country to focus on issues related to systemic racism in our country. And as a result, we've seen a lot more of a diversity of people in the streets than were in the streets for the Black Lives Matter movement before. So in a lot of ways, I think distributed organizing, to get back to your question, helped to bring out more of a diversity of members and people in the streets. Now, one thing that's, I think, interesting and notable is with the data that I've collected so far, the people in the streets around systemic racism continue to be predominantly women. I would say that not predominantly, I'd say majority women. But the other thing is, you know, they're more, you know, they're much more racially diverse. In fact, I think we see about 50% of them identify as being black. But we also still see a really highly educated group of people out in the streets. And that makes a lot of sense because when you think about the people who have the freedom to go out in the streets and are not needing to work even during a pandemic, um, and when I say work, I mean people who have to go to a job during a pandemic, those people tend to be more highly educated. What is also interesting is that instead of these people being mostly middle-aged, as in an average age in their 40s, we're seeing people much younger out in the streets. And I think that is not because of the movement, but rather that is because of the pandemic. Because um, no matter what our president says, the message has come out and, and been well received by many people that the people who are most at risk to the most negative consequences of having COVID are people who are older. And so the people who are more comfortable going out and doing anything face to face. But I should say that I've been to many of these protest events and everybody's always masked. But nonetheless, we still see much younger groups of people. So the average age is around 30 or even less than 30 at these events. Okay, thanks. You covered a lot of this already, uh, but I'd like to ask it anyway. Um, are the 2020 presidential campaigns using distributed organizing? And, and if so, how? And I'd be interested to know a bit more about what you see are the differences between the Biden and the Trump campaigns on that point. Okay, so I should just start by saying that I have very limited knowledge of the Trump campaign. Most of what I, I know has been um, based on people who are doing some comparisons of the digital outreach for the Trump campaign, but I'm not studying it. I've studied previous Republican campaigns and how they do their ground game, and I know that they focus very much on relational contacts. But I do also know from people who are studying the Trump campaign that they are using text banking, phone banking. And some people are even reporting getting multiple texts and, and phone call you know, contacts a day at this point. 
So there is some distributed organizing taking place, but I'm very, I, I don't feel very well equipped to, to answer questions about that. I do know also that the Trump campaign is continuing to connect people face to face. Donald Trump up at least through, you know, the end of last week was holding personal events where people were coming and collecting in crowds and his campaign was sending people out to go door to door. On the left, in contrast, the Biden campaign has not been coordinating many in-person events due to COVID. However, a lot of different campaigns at the local level are continuing to do this kind of local contact and face-to-face -face voter contact. And they're using these notions of what they call deep canvassing, which are efforts to connect people, but following proper protocols with regard to wearing masks and keeping really adequate social distance. And so I know that that's happening. It's happening much less than it has in any campaign before. Even if we think back to the midterm elections in 2018, uh, there was a huge effort to get people out in the streets knocking on doors. So this is like what I call the resistance in the districts, not the resistance in the streets in my book, which is people who are left-leaning and trying to challenge the Trump agenda and its policies by working towards electoral politics and electoral political gains. So those people going out, knocking on doors, registering voters and then reminding voters that they should go out and vote and reminding them how to vote and making sure that they're voting for the what they whom they consider to be the appropriate candidates we're not seeing that right now on the left much at all but uh as a recent piece i wrote in the american prospect with laura putnam points out what's really important here is that you know there's research that says that a lot of that work of the ground game is not particularly effective when it's not being done by friends and neighbors, as in people who are engaged in localities. And so the local campaigns that are doing it now are likely to be much more effective. And what we know from research, and I know from my research, is that getting a call from a neighbor or a friend or somebody whom you know who's in your network in some way, maybe somebody whose child also goes to your child's school or through you know, some sort of religious group that you're affiliated with, those people are much more likely to get you to pay attention than some stranger knocking on your door. However, on the left, I know, and I've documented for many years through my second book, as well as in American Resistance, the way that the left has tended to bring in strangers to do the work of what I consider to be community members. And they don't do it nearly as well. So now we're not seeing that. And instead, these people who really wanna be you know, foot soldiers and help out the campaigns are doing it digitally. So I think that's a very interesting way that we can see that distributed organizing is taking advantage of all of these people who don't live in areas where there are contested campaigns to help, but they may be channeling their efforts into much more effective outcomes. That's great. Thank you. So what role are the resistance and its activists playing in the lead up to the 2020 election, especially you know, we're getting quite close now in the really close lead up? And is there evidence that it's encouraging more participation in, in politics in the political process? Well, there's a lot of evidence that registration rates are skyrocketing. Uh, I just read one yesterday that talked about how young people have registered at remarkable rates in the past uh, month or so. Um, I, ha I don't have a lot of raw data on that yet, but I think there's a lot of indication that we are going to see huge turnout for this election, even though most people are not particularly comfortable participating by going and waiting in line to vote in person given the pandemic. A lot of organizations, these resistance groups, have been focusing to make sure their members are registered, to make sure they help to register other people in their communities and through their networks, which again is one of the, one of the great ways to take distributed organizing and use it to facilitate better infrastructure at the local level. 
but the organizations are also starting to get people engaged and involved in making sure that they vote. Um, and they're doing, they're, they're doing new things. I mean, this is a really unprecedented election for us. We've got the pandemic. We have uh, a lot of voter suppression efforts underway. Uh, for example, in Texas, they're now saying there's only going to be one place you can vote in each county, even though some counties are extremely large. So a lot of these resistance groups are providing the kinds of educational information that's necessary so people know how to vote. And for many people who are voting by mail, and I should just like highlight here that our president also votes by mail, even though he has raised a lot of question about the validity and challenged whether or not voting by mail is sufficient, even though, as I said before, he, he votes by mail himself. What's really interesting is that these organizations are using distributed organizing, but they're also using their networks more generally to educate their members about how to make sure they vote by mail in a way that works. Uh, I just heard yesterday on the radio that I believe it was in the state of Florida, there was a very high percentage of people who were voting by mail and not filling out their ballots properly, so they're being just thrown in the trash can. And it was something having to do with the fact that you need to use double envelopes. I have my mail-in ballot right here, and I actually checked yesterday morning right after that to see if I had to do a double envelope. I do not in the state of Maryland, but every state is different. So one of the things that organizations are doing is they're telling people exactly how to do that. One of the other things is that many counties now have available these drop boxes where you can drop off your ballot once you fill it in so you don't have to go through the post office. We haven't even talked about the post office and the challenges of defunding the post office and challenges that are happening there as well. But as a result, many organizations are making sure everybody knows where they can drop off their ballots. So, so these groups are doing a lot of that. And some of them are also talking about, you know, big issues that are going to be kind of central, whatever happens after the 2020 election. Thanks. So that's a, that's a great segue, because my next question is about what happens after the 2020 election. So Trump or, or Biden presumably will win the election. Either of them will be maybe in the White House on January 21st, 2021. What then is the role of the resistance and its activists in a second Trump administration or in Biden's first? Well, you know, there is always this question of what happens to the resistance when Democrats win. And there is a long history of research that shows that social movements, the saying goes that Democratic administrations are the graveyard of progressive movements. And there's been a lot of research on that as, as recently as the early aughts, where people talked about how the anti-war movement basically didn't disintegrate, but really, um, let's just say it disintegrated after Obama took office and took the White House and there was a Democratic Congress. So I've always wondered about what will happen with the resistance. And certainly we know that many Americans who woke up on the morning after the 2016 election and realized they couldn't sit on their sofas anymore and had to get involved. And then they got involved and they went to the Women's March and then they joined organizations and they have been engaged and involved ever since, fueled by outrage at all of the different things that the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself have been doing. I'm not sure how many of them will stay woke, if you will. But I think that there's a lot of reason to believe that many of them will stay attentive at least to make sure that America gets back on track and starts moving in, the, in what they see as the right direction. Let's say it that way. So that would be a, a Biden administration. Uh, if there's another Trump administration, as I've written, I wrote a piece in Time Magazine actually last December that said this, but if there's another Trump administration, I believe that um, 
we're going down, you know, a path that is really unpredictable. And I think many of the people who have been holding back or tempering their resistance to make sure that it is legal and following through institutional political channels are going to recognize, or maybe not even recognize, but many of the people who've been following these institutional political channels and channeling their resistance into electoral politics are basically going to decide that they no longer can wait and as a result, it will be very likely to see a lot more confrontation in the streets. We saw some of it this summer. I did not predict that, but I also did not predict that an unarmed black man was going to be murdered on social media by police in Minneapolis. So there's already a lot of outrage in the streets and it's boiled over and it's made, you know, it's been exacerbated in so many ways by the way law enforcement has responded. And we've seen a real militarization of the ways that protests um, have been policed. You know, if there's another Trump administration, that's just going to get worse. And as a result, I predict that many of these people who were so peaceful and marching with their pink hats are not going to be so peaceful anymore. I mean, the, the third option that you didn't ask about was what happens if there is a Biden success and yet Donald Trump refuses to leave the White House. And many people have been talking about that. And I think that that, you know, that's not unlikely at all, particularly if you look at um, the message that Donald Trump was giving to his followers during the first debate, many of whom are willing to arm themselves and go and threaten and attack peaceful protesters. So we could really see some level of civil war in the streets of the United States, which would break my heart, but it may be the only way through to a more successful and effective democracy. Now all your listeners are going to think I'm calling for a civil war, of course, but I'm not at all. I just think that it's a very, very likely outcome. So we need to be prepared for that and not be surprised when we see that. We've already seen these people who are arming themselves, who are going out and threatening peaceful protesters, who are just raising their voices and following in their constitutional rights. So it makes a lot of sense to expect to see more of that, not less, unfortunately. One thing that I didn't, I didn't get to talk about is that if we do see a Biden success, so if, if Biden is successful in his campaign and we see a Biden presidency, there's a lot of polling right now that suggests we may also see a Democratic Senate. And if there is, you know, an alignment of party control in the houses of Congress, along with Biden taking the White House, it provides a wonderful opportunity for some real progressive change in this country. I mean, and I know that We've seen a lot of interesting proposals up on the Biden campaign website, and there is a key place for resistance groups to play a role in helping to bring about and push for and encourage the progressive, the most progressive policies that are up there on that website to become reality and help get them through the Congress. I think that there may be an opportunity for that, and that could really, you know, save America in some ways. I mean, if you think back to the way that the New Deal saved America before, perhaps we'll see that again. But we are certainly on the precipice here. So it's very hard to predict what will happen. But I can say that there's no question that everyday Americans are paying attention like they never have before. And we are seeing a lot of young people paying much more attention, which is really heartening because clearly, well, they're the future. And they also play an extreme role in, you know, determining the outcomes of elections. That's great. Well, I think that's a, a really, that's an upbeat place for us to end. Professor Dana Fisher, thank you so much for joining us on The Ballpark. It's been fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Dana Fisher is a professor of sociology and the director of the Programme for Society and the Environment at the University of Maryland. That's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Dana Fisher for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. We're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at at lse underscore ballpark, and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.